Good morning and welcome to the New York Historical Society. A lot of great energy here this morning. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our, we always say, our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. And I'm, you know, going to talk about that just a drop. I did last night at our film series, Best Seats in New York City. They're the most comfortable seats. Beautiful stage. Uh, very. In it gives us a real intimate uh, relationship with you. It's small, but it's big enough for the big crowd that we have here this morning for John Maurer. Um, John, we're thrilled to have you. I'll tell you, you know, uh, we'll tell you a little bit about him before we get going. Um, but I just want to let everyone know um, we're thrilled to have you here on this cold Saturday morning. You warm the whole place up. And I'd just like to know how many members we have with us this morning. So everyone take a look at how, keep the hands up, and everyone take a look at how, we have so many wonderful members. We thank you for your support. Your membership helps keep these, all of our programs going. And for those of you who are not yet members, we invite you to join the family. It's a great place to become a member. You know, there's all kinds of benefits. So if you're not a member yet, pick up our brochure. It tells you all about the exhibitions, and all the kinds of things that um, you can partake of here at New York Historical. I'd like to tell you about our, just briefly, our exhibitions on view now is the exhibition Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion, which explores a century-long history of trade and immigration between China and the U.S. Also on view is Audubon's Aviary, The Final Flight, beautiful exhibition of Audubon's work, Freedom Journey, 1965, photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March by Stephen, Stephen Summerstein, very moving, small exhibition in two of our galleries. It's worth going up there and taking a look. And our latest exhibition, Lincoln and the Jews, um, very powerful, interesting exhibition. So again, pick up the brochure. Think about becoming a member if you're not. And for those of you who are members, you can upgrade. <laughs> you also, another possibility is, you know, talking to you about these, un the best seats everywhere, really, probably all over the country. They're the most comfortable seats. You can have your name on the seats. You know, if you, if you go around and looking, there's a little plaque. You can name it for a family member, some, someone to remember, or your own family. And um, the information's in here. The numbers are here to call. Um, so today's program, Winston Churchill and American Presidents, From Roosevelt to Roosevelt, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to thank our partners in presenting this program, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who developed this program in collaboration with us. And I think this is the fourth time or fifth John Maurer is coming, and he's just becoming the bigger, bigger, and bigger star that we have here. He's wonderful. Um, he promises to do a fun program today. I'd also like to recognize Scott Delman, Glenn Louie, and Eric Wallach, all trustees with us, great supporters. 
um, and all our chairman's council members with us today for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a great hand. Thank you. So the program this morning will last an hour and a half. It will include a question and answer session, and audience members will be invited to approach the, the microphones that are standing in the two aisles. We ask that you do this so that everyone in the auditorium can hear you, the speaker can hear you, and because we're recording it for podcasts so that the whole world can hear you. I'd like to welcome Alan Luxemburg, the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who will be introducing Jan, John Maurer today. Based in Philadelphia, FPRI, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, has been ranked as the number one think tank in the country with a budget of under $5 million. So now, please join me in welcoming Alan Luxemburg. Thank you. I'd also like to welcome everybody here on behalf of the Foreign Policy Research and to thank uh, the New York Historical Society for hosting us for what will be the second part of a three-part lecture series that we're holding here uh, this spring. If you're not familiar with FPRI, its mission is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the foreign policy and national security challenges facing the United States. We do this through the geopolitical perspective, which looks at contemporary international affairs through the lens of history, geography, and culture. We offer, uh, we, we educate the public, and we offer our ideas for policies that advance American national interests. Uh, if you'd like more information, we have brochures at the table outside the auditorium at the end of the program. As, um, as Dale said, over the past uh, three years, we've uh, featured a dozen speakers here, and five of them have been named John Moore. Uh, his lectures have covered uh, Churchill and the origins of World War I, Churchill and Britain in the aftermath of World War I, Churchill, Roosevelt, and the, world, and the road to Pearl Harbor, Churchill, the rise of German power, and the outbreak of World War II. Perhaps you have detected a pattern here. He is backed by popular demand to speak on, as you can see, Churchill and American presidents from uh, Roosevelt to Roosevelt. He received his PhD from the Fletcher School of, uh, of uh, Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He's taught for 25 years at the U.S. Naval War College. He served eight years as chair of the strategy department, and he is now their Alfred Thayer Mahan Professor of Sea Power and Grand Strategy. At FPRI, we take great pride in John's accomplishment, as he is in part a product of FPRI, having served as a pre-doctoral fellow at our institute in the 1970s, went on to become a senior fellow and editor of our journal, Orbis. It is therefore both a personal and a professional pleasure to ask you to join me in welcoming John Moore. I want to thank Dale and Alan and Alex and Hannah for uh, supporting me and Jenna, yeah, uh, of the uh, New York Historical Society as well for inviting me back to give a talk this morning. This morning I'm going to be speaking about the relationship of Churchill to American presidents.
Churchill knew a great number of them, met them. Uh, he had opinions about these American presidents. And they had opinions about him, as you're going to see. So what I'm going to be talking about is how leaders reflect on other leaders and think about other leaders. And also to look at Anglo-American relations, the relationship between Britain and the United States over a long period of time, over 40-some years at the beginning of the 20th century. Well, Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, had a long relationship with the United States, going back to his mom. Jeanette Jerome, Jenny Jerome, born in Brooklyn, an American. Expe I hear the Brooklyn fans there. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> uh, while in Europe, an expatriate family, uh, Jenny uh, fell in love and married Lord Randolph Churchill, who is uh, Winston Churchill's father, member of the British aristocracy. Uh, here she is, a portrait of her uh, as a 1920-year-old when she was married to Lord Randolph, and Churchill was born in 1874. She was born in 1854. And there you see young Winston with his loving mother. He's about four years old there. Look at how he's dressed. <laughs> what an embarrassing portrait for a statesman, right? <laughs> well, Churchill wrote in his autobiography, My Early Life, that he was a troubled boy in the sense that he caused trouble for others. Uh, he said, I was called a troublesome boy. There he is at about 13. Do you see that scowl there? Wow. Wow. Does he look like that? <laughs> look at those two. <laughs> 50 years difference, but boy, they look alike, don't they? You can see the resemblance between the two, the young teenager and the statesman that stood up to Hitler. Okay, that pugnacious, troublesome boy grew, out to, grew up to be a uh, statesman who gave trouble to uh, people like Hitler. Well, Churchill's mom, at times she could, oh, the letters she would write to Winston Churchill at school. Uh, this is what she wrote at one point when she saw some of Churchill's grades. Look at that letter. Wow, scolding. Insult to your intelligence, thoughtlessness. It's your great enemy. Uh, these letters often sound harsh, but actually Churchill's mother was one of his greatest supporters through her life. And Churchill always looked back and had fond memories, remembrances of his mother, even though she did write these letters to goad him to do better, to push himself. And indeed, Churchill and his younger brother Jack were two very successful, successful leaders. So whatever we see in this letter, whatever context we see, while the product of the parenting worked out rather well. Well, here's Churchill as a young man. He started off uh, as a soldier graduating from Sandhurst. He saw action in Cuba, where he was an observer in the rebellion that took place against Spanish rule in Cuba. He also saw action on the northwest frontier of India, today modern-day Pakistan along the Afghan border. He saw action in 1898 in Egypt and the Sudan. 
And in 1900, he saw action in South Africa in what's known as the Boer War. So here's a young man uh, by the, uh, his 26th year, by 1900, has seen a great deal of combat, has been in many situations where he could have been killed, and in combat has killed people as well. Well, because he was a war hero in the Boer War, he became a celebrity, and he wrote about his experiences. Not only was the young Winston a soldier, he was also a highly paid journalist. He wrote about his experiences in the northwest frontier uh, of India, about Africa, the Sudan campaign, the River War, and also about the Boer War. Well, he was such a celebrity, he was able to be elected to parliament in 1900. And so he entered into parliament as a political figure because Churchill, while he was a good soldier and admired the military and could envision a life of being a soldier, a military leader, his true ambition was to go into politics. Well, in 1900, because he was a celebrity, he was able to arrange a speaking tour to come to the United States and talk about his experiences in South Africa in the Boer War. And this is what he looked like in 1900 when he came to the United States. Now, while in the United States, he was introduced by Senator DePew of New York to none other than President McKinley. So my talk this morning has been mislabeled. It's really from McKinley to Roosevelt. Uh, Churchill wrote back to his mother that he was very impressed by President McKinley. Of course, McKinley was a veteran of the American Civil War, fought at the Battle of Antietam. And Churchill knew that and had a great deal of respect for President McKinley. While in the United States, he also met Theodore Roosevelt. Now, Roosevelt, as you're going to see, didn't form a very good impression of Winston Churchill. They went to a dinner party together. And this is what Theodore Roosevelt had to say about the experience. He found Churchill to be a rude young man. Roosevelt wrote to his son, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., that he hates it when someone obliges him to behave like a swine, to prevent that other person from behaving like a swine. Why was he angry at Churchill? I had to ask him to say goodbye to his hostess. Churchill was going to go away from the dinner party without thanking his hostess. And notice this, take the cigar out of your mouth, too. Well, Roosevelt didn't form a good first impression of Churchill. Indeed, many of the people that met Churchill for the first time didn't form a good impression of him. Churchill is someone that grew on you. The more you knew him, the more you could see his talents. Well, the Great War, the Great War of 1914-18, the First World War. Churchill, at the outbreak of the First World War, was the first Lord of the Admiralty the civilian head of the Royal Navy, our equivalent of the Secretary of the Navy. He had taken up that position in 1911. In 1914, Churchill was 40 years old. November 30th, 1914, he turned 40 years old. So this is a painting of him in his late 30s. So here he is, a young man with considerable responsibility for the security of the British Empire to make sure that the Royal Navy is strong, able to defend Britain from invasion, and also, as they would say, from starvation, being able to keep open the sea lines of communication that brought in food to Britain. 
Well, he was a very successful First Lord of the Admiralty before the First World War in preparing the Royal Navy for war. And during the July crisis of 1914, when the First World War broke out, Churchill understood the danger that the British fleet would be in. The Germans might launch a surprise attack against it, much as the Japanese launched a surprise attack against the American fleet at Pearl Harbor at the outbreak of the Second World War. Churchill was alert to the danger of a surprise attack on the British fleet. And so during the July crisis, he was insistent that the fleet be kept mobilized and deployed to a war station where the Germans couldn't find it so that they couldn't launch a surprise attack on the British fleet. Here is the Grand Fleet, the main fleet of the Royal Navy, steaming off to war stations. And so the First World War did not begin with a surprise attack on the British fleet. Well, Theodore Roosevelt was very impressed by this, by Churchill's actions during the July crisis, ensuring that the British fleet was not caught unawares. And so Theodore Roosevelt wrote to one of his British friends, Arthur Lee, he wrote, I've never liked Churchill. But in view of what he did in preparing the fleet for war and ensuring that it wasn't caught by surprise by the Germans, extend to him my congratulations. Again, Roosevelt understood the stakes at risk for Britain to lose its main fleet at the outside of the war would be a disaster for Britain. So Churchill's actions helped preserve Britain's ability to fight the war against Germany. Now, Churchill right away understood that the United States was going to be an important player, even though it still was not yet in the war. And so, less than a month into the war, he is giving interviews to American journalists. And in the New York Times, you can see this interview from the end of August 1914. And Churchill is trying to alert Americans. Again, this is less than a month into the First World War. He's trying to alert Americans to what's at stake in this war. And he's highlighting this as an ideological war. It's a war between militarism, Prussian militarism, a German military dictatorship, and democracy. The war has been started, in Churchill's opinion, by the Prussian military. And the stakes are that of militarism against democracy. It's a great collision. So he's highlighting the ideological dimensions of what's at stake here. And then he uses some wonderful language here in these, uh, this interview. He says, the democratic nations of the world, and what does he mean by that? Where peoples own the government and not the government the people. That has echoes of Lincoln, doesn't it, to it? And that's what Americans should understand what's at stake here. Who do they want to see win this war? And by the way, I'm half American. Highlight that to the American public as well. Again, Churchill is proud of his American heritage. Well, during the war itself, he highlighted to the British public how important the United States could be in the war. Uh, in a speech that he gave in September 1917, one of the lines in the speech is saying, hey, how is Britain going to win the war against Germany? This is the First World War. A, the word A. Letter A, airplanes and America. If you want to understand Winston Churchill's strategy in the Second World War, keep this in mind. There's continuity here between the First World War and the Second World War. Churchill understands 
that in any contest, any conflict with Germany, be it Imperial Germany or Nazi Germany, that Britain is going to need the United States to be able to prevail in such a contest, in such a war. There you see Churchill's wife, by the way, Clementine Churchill, uh, behind him. I like this photograph because it shows him making a point. You can see the way his hand is being hammered into the other hand. I also like that hat that Clementine's wearing. <laughs> Very much the style of the First World War. Well, behind the scenes, what Churchill was saying publicly, behind the scenes, he was saying the same thing. This is a photograph of Admiral William Sims. Admiral Sims was the president of the Naval War College where I teach, twice, both before the First World War and after the First World War. During the war, he was sent to be in command of American naval forces in Europe. So he was headquartered in London. This is a photograph of Admiral Sims. Well, in London, and this is a letter that he wrote to his wife, Admiral Sims wrote to his wife, he met Lady Randolph Churchill. And he had dinner with Lady Randolph Churchill, who, there's a photograph of her in the period of the First World War. She's in her young 60s there. That's how Churchill's mother looked at this time. And uh, Sims met then with Winston Churchill, Winston, Lady Randolph's uh, son. Again, formerly First Lord of the Admiralty. Long and interesting talk. Sims records in this letter to his wife. He says the Allies would be beaten. In other words, Germany would win if America had not come in. When you read Sims's letters to his wife and also his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Victory at Sea, which he wrote after the First World War, Sims will tell you that he thought Britain was doing better in the war until he got over to Britain. And he realized how desperate the situation was in the spring of 1917 with the German U-boats sinking so many British and neutral ships at that time, that the situation was worse than what he had imagined. So Churchill is saying to Admiral Sims, highlighting to him how important the United States is for Britain to be able to prevail against Germany, and that Germany would win this war had, had the United States not come in. Well, the United States support for the Allies was decisive in turning the tide against Germany. That Imperial Germany was defeated by this coalition of Allied and associated powers. We were not part of the Allies. Woodrow Wilson didn't want us to be a formal ally. So we were an associated power. We were associated with the Allies. Uh, the United States deployed a large army to France in 1918. Over two million American soldiers were in France by the end of the war in 1918. The American army in France was bigger than the French army in France by the end of 1918. Again, that gives you some idea of the magnitude of the American commitment to this war. This is a big transformation. Up to this point, the United States had not played such a huge role in the world scene. But the First World War showed the great military potential of the United States, the ability to deploy an ocean away over there. Two million American soldiers. Well, here at the end of the war, you see a poster for a mass meeting here in New York on December 7th, 1918. And what does this poster show? Well, there's Britannia, the female personification of Britain, holding the trident high, Trident King Neptune, right? Britain dominating the waves. 
arm in arm with Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam has the sword unsheathed and the lion and the eagle. Again, side by side, the United States and Britain together have won the war and, if they stay together, can enforce the peace and make sure that this is the last great war, that there will no longer be another great war. Well, as we know, that was not to happen. After the First World War, one thing that happens is that the United States and Britain fall out with each other on this question of who's going to hold the trident? Will it be the United States or Britain? Which country is going to be the leading naval power in the world? This is part of the history of the international relations of the period between the two world wars that is not well known today. And so I want to highlight this because this is one of the major irritants, points of contention between Britain and the United States between the two world wars, about what size each country's fleet should be relative to the other. Should Britain remain the dominant world power and naval power? Or should the United States be on par, at least equal with that of Britain? So a naval rivalry emerges between Britain and the United States after the First World War. Churchill, after the First World War, the British government calls an election. And this is Churchill going back to his uh, seat, uh, parliamentary seat, in the Scottish industrial fishing city of Dundee, up in the north. And here he is delivering a speech at the end of November 1918. The war has just been over uh, on the Western Front for a couple weeks. And there you see Churchill, big audience uh, around him, speaking to his constituency. And in this speech, he highlights the importance of naval power, British naval power, for winning the war. He says, nothing that you can dream of, anything that people will tell you, no arguments, however specious, no appeals, however seductive. In a moment, you'll see who is offering these seductive appeals must lead you to abandon naval supremacy. Britain has to keep hold of that trident because Britain's security, its life depends upon it. A league of nations is no substitute for the supremacy of the British fleet. Now, who is calling for a league of nations at this time? Woodrow Wilson, the American president. So what did Woodrow Wilson think about this? Well, Wilson was coming over to Europe to take part in the peace negotiations. And on the way to Europe, he heard about Churchill's speech. It was reported to him. The speech came in. And again, the substance is that the Royal Navy should remain supreme. Wilson said, well, if that's what they think, we can build the biggest navy in the world. Because we have the money, the men, and resources to do it. The United States should have a powerful navy, at least as strong, if not stronger than that, of Britain. Britain should limit its fleet. There are alternatives to the supremacy of the Royal Navy, like the League of Nations. And look at this language from President Wilson. Again, this is recorded by one of his secretaries in her diary. If the British won't limit their fleet, there will be another more terrible and bloody war. And what will the result will be? England will be wiped off the face of the map. Wow, that's pretty tough language. Churchill obviously, boo, poked Wilson there. 
By the way, at a reception at Buckingham Palace, Churchill and Wilson uh, got together. And Wilson said to Churchill, rebuked him, said, Well, Mr. Churchill, what's the story about your Royal Navy? Uh, Wilson told his secretary that Churchill was stunned and said nothing. Imagine that, a speechless Churchill. (laughs) Again, highlighting a naval rivalry is emerging between Britain and the United States. During the First World War, as part of the preparedness movement, Woodrow Wilson championed a big navy, that the United States should build a big navy. It's in this period of time that the United States takes off legislation in August of 1916 to build a navy to protect the United States in the Pacific and in the Atlantic. Now look at this $2 bill from 1918. Isn't that remarkable? I always say to the, uh, you know, to, uh, the admirals I meet that we should try to get the president to put an aircraft carrier on a $20 bill if you want to highlight the role of the navy. Again, in this period of time of World War preparedness, the, uh, uh, the message that the United States has to build up a powerful navy was being received by the American people favorably. The American people wanted to see a stronger navy. And Woodrow Wilson, before the war occurred, in a speech in St. Louis, highlighted that the United States Navy, in his judgment, has to be, as he said, incomparably the greatest navy in the world. Again, Britain has the greatest navy in the world. A rising power with economic strength, translating that economic strength now into military power, to naval power. Well, Wilson's successor, President Harding. Now, Wilson and Harding did not agree on many things. Two very different people. One thing they disagreed on was the League of Nations. Harding was opposed to it. But there was one thing that Harding and Wilson could agree upon. Here's a headline from the New York Times. After the election of 1920, President Harding went off for a cruise, a vacation to the Caribbean. New York Times reports that he came back with a nice suntan. Um, By the way, uh, those of you who are fans of the show Justified um, can see uh, uh, a storyline that looks very much like uh, the, the story of that show. Federal agents in a gun battle with moonshiners in the Kentucky Hills. Wow, okay. Well, Harding's speech gave a speech when he came back to the United States about American naval aspirations. And here it is, that speech being recorded. Wow, what a, what a microphone that is. So different from what we have today. I'm glad I don't have to talk into one of those. Okay, and here, here's part of the speech. Harding uh, wants to acclaim that the United States should be the most eminent, most eminent of maritime nations. The United States has to build up a navy equal to its aspirations. And no nation has ever been a big player in world history that has not had a prominent place in maritime affairs. So Harding II, Republican successor to Woodrow Wilson, is championing this big navy. Well, the recording of Harding's speech made it across the Atlantic and was listened to by Churchill and by his boss, the British Prime Minister, Lloyd George. Uh, Churchill, when he heard the speech, he just went crazy. They started to make fun of Harding and Harding's intonations and the rest. And uh, uh, this is what uh, Churchill had to say about Harding's speech. American politicians give themselves to platitudes. That's not true, is it? 
This is what American politicians only feel comfortable in saying. The sun shone yesterday upon this great and glorious country. It shines today and will shine tomorrow. Applause, right? <laughs> uh, American politicians don't want to say things that are too controversial. Uh, they have to say these platitudes according to Winston Churchill. Um, Lloyd George's boss, the prime minister, was even more severe. He said, Harding's speech about the U.S. building up its navy made him feel he would pawn his shirt no matter how poor Britain felt after the First World War with big war debts to the United States. He'd pawn his shirt rather than let the Americans dominate the seas. Again, this hostility emerging between Britain and the United States over who's going to have the world's strongest navy. Well, Harding's successor, Calvin Coolidge, was also a champion of a big navy. He put in place a program to build a large number of American cruisers. Here you see an American cruiser, the Chicago, being built. And on November 11th, 1928, 10 years after the armistice, Calvin Coolidge gave a, a message to the American people in which he said that the United States had to build up a powerful navy to be strong against Britain. This infuriated Winston Churchill. Uh, there's uh, Coolidge with his dogs. This is what Churchill had to say about Coolidge in a, uh, a memorandum to his colleagues in the government, the conservative government at the time. Coolidge has just explained the viewpoint of a New England backwoodsman. Ooh, that's harsh. That hurts. The crude and amateurish character of Coolidge's remarks. Well, his successors will have an opportunity uh, to do something else. Remember, Coolidge was the one I choose not to run. He decided not to run. He made an announcement in 1927. He's succeeded by, um, by Herbert Hoover. Now, there's somebody, though, who agrees with Churchill uh, on this. And that is uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who in 1928 wrote an article in the journal Foreign Affairs about the United States' position in the world, and if the Democrats op, uh, uh, are able to control the White House, what their foreign policy would be. So here's a, a photograph of, of Roosevelt at this time when he's running for governor of New York and, of course, wins in 1928 as governor. Um, and in this article, this is some of the passages from it. Again, he takes a dig at the Coolidge administration. Coolidge is building up the U.S. Navy at a time when there's no real threat out there to the United States. He uses the word unparalleledly secure. For those of you who play word games, unparalleledly. Wow, that's a lot of letters. It's hard to say, too. I've been practicing that. <laughs> Again, why build up a big navy at a time when the United States is secure? In the last analysis, all you need is a police force on the world's oceans. Against piracy, maintain good order. See, you don't, there's no great rivals out there. And uh, Roosevelt goes on to say, only admirals who have an interest in a lot of ships uh, who, are, who are excited about having more ships. They're the only ones who consider the possibility, seriously, of a war between Japan and the United States, for example. Of course, Roosevelt is going to be president of the United States in 1941 when we go to war against Japan. Clearly, Franklin D. Roosevelt's crystal ball is not very clear in 1928. But nonetheless, in 1928, that makes a lot of sense. That was the reality 
the great powers were not that threatening to each other. Within a few years, that would, would change. By the way, I want to highlight that word invasion there because you're going to see in a few minutes uh, that in Roosevelt's speech asking for a declaration of war against Japan on December 8, 1941, he uses that word invasion. That's one of the words in Roosevelt's vocabulary that he uses. Well, Churchill is beside himself at Coolidge and these naval aspirations of the United States. What does he say about Americans? They're arrogant, fundamentally hostile to us. They want to supplant Britain on the world stage. They want to dominate world politics. Whereas British statesmen know Britain should dominate world politics. And their big Navy talk, all of those who want to build up a powerful American fleet, let's call their bluff. Let's see if they really, Americans really want to spend money on challenging Britain as the world's leading naval power. In a cabinet memorandum, Churchill wrote this. No doubt it's quite right that we should all say there's no possibility of war between Britain and the United States. It's unthinkable. But everybody knows that's not true. Not true. Might be low probability, but it could happen. However foolish and disastrous such a war would be, Britain doesn't want to be in the power of the United States. Again, a rivalry here between a rising power on the world stage and a status quo power that wants to preserve its position on the world stage. We, Winston Churchill, by the way, is one of the most pro-American British statesmen you're going to find. But this rivalry on naval matters shows something about Churchill, how he believed that Britain had to maintain a strong navy if it was going to defend itself in the world because the British Empire stretched around the world. It was linked together by sea lines of communication. Britain's industry, its people were dependent upon foodstuffs, raw materials shipped from around the world. So that Britain, in his view, needed to have for its security the strongest navy in the world. Well, if you think Churchill's views are harsh, I want to take a little diversion from my talk about Churchill and the American presidents to talk about how planners, military planners, in Britain and the United States envisioned what a war between Britain and the United States would look like between the two world wars. This is the great war that was never fought. It was imagined, it was gamed out, played out, thought about and planned for. This shows General Douglas MacArthur, Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army. He signs off on a war plan for the invasion of Canada. By the way, the American planners planned for a whole number of different types of wars, and they coded countries with colors. Blue is always the United States. We're the blue team. Black was Germany. So war plan black is war plans against Germany. War plan orange, famous war plan for war against Japan. Red is Great Britain. Crimson is Canada. Okay, and there's a whole, I'm, I'm just giving you a sampling of some of the colors. Uh, so war plan red was devised. The army came up with a plan that the United States would need to mobilize four million soldiers, deploy four armies up against Canada, and these are the relative axis of advance into Canada. To be able to defeat Britain, Canada was a hostage. 
uh, it was thought that maybe the Canadians would declare themselves neutral in a war between Britain and the United States. Uh, four million soldiers and a big invasion of Canada. Meanwhile, up in Newport, Rhode Island, where I teach at the Naval War College, the war gamers, naval planners, would game out what a sea war would look like between the British and American navies. This is Pringle Hall. Pringle Hall still exists at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, it is now the center, by the way, for international programs because we have over 200 some students from around the world who attend the Naval War College at, in Newport. But here you see the gaming floor. And what the planners would do, Navy officers would do, is game out movements of ships in battle. Big elaborate war games would be played. And so we can imagine what this war between Britain and the United States would look like from these games that were played out. And each move of the game is being recorded uh, in, uh, uh, of the games that take place. And for the American naval planners, while the army's invading Canada, it's thought that the Royal Navy is going to send their main battle fleet across the Atlantic to try to bring reinforcements and support from Britain to Canada. And this would lead to a big naval engagement between the U.S. fleet and the British fleet. Red against blue. The American battle line would steam out into the Atlantic, British fleet coming across, and it would result in a big battle. Now this is one of the drawings from the Naval War College archives of uh, moves of the game. The, beautifully done on this blue paper, and you can see the, the draftsmen, what they did. This is a game from 1924. Almost every year, these games would be played out. And what you see here is the American fleet moving out of Newport, British fleet coming along, and there's going to be a big naval engagement off of Sable Island as the British are trying to get to Halifax. And here's the actual engagement, one of the moves, uh, diagram six. It shows the British fleet, the American fleet, steaming, you know, fighting each other. Again, each move is recorded. I could show you one of these after another, like a motion picture, uh, to show you what these games were like. Again, very elaborate games played out. Well, who won? You ask, right? Who won? Red or blue? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Suspense. <laughs> Spoiler alert, coming to a theater near you. Well, uh, the rise of American naval power, economic strength to Churchill, would Britain be able to stay on as the world's dominant power on the world stage with this rising American power? And to his wife, Clementine, he wrote, Britain is being slowly forced into the shade by the United States. Well, his wife, Clementine, said, here's my advice to you, Winston. Make America like you. This is from a letter. There's Clementine Churchill in 1929. Different hat now. You can see the flapper style. Again, try to understand and master America. Your hostility toward uh, the United States. The Churchill had a reputation in 1929 as being one of the most hostile British politicians to the United States. And again, it's this naval rivalry that's driving this. She says, you, you've got to learn to master the United States. Make, make America like you again. And so in 1929, after a general election in which the conservative party lost, Churchill is out of power, he came over on a speaking tour of Canada and the United States. And by September of 1929, he's in Hollywood, and there he is with Charlie Chaplin. He's just struck by L.A., 
L.A., the streets are ablaze with lights of every kind. It's a carnival in fairyland. That's what L.A. He's drawing these wonderful impressions of the United States and Canada from his travel. And again, he made great friends with Charlie Chaplin. Can't help liking him, even though he's a bullshit. <laughs> Little too left-wing in his politics for, for, for Churchill's liking. But delightful in conversation. He also met with William Randolph Hearst, the great media baron, and with Louis B. Mayer, the entertainment industry. Again, Churchill very impressed by what he's seeing in L.A. and the American media and also the entertainment industry. And while in L.A., look what happens. What a fish story. And it's true. Look what he caught. This is from the L.A. Times. A 188-pound marlin swordfish. He went out there the first day, you know, put his line out, and look what he brought back in. Wow, that's incredible. Anyway, it was reported in the LA Times with this photograph there of Churchill. He has a good fish story to tell there. Well, coming back across the United States from LA, he came back to Washington, D.C., where he met President Herbert Hoover in the White House. He had an office call with the president, and here is uh, Winston Churchill leaving the White House after his meeting with Herbert Hoover. We don't have a, uh, any idea of what Hoover thought about Churchill at this time, so I have no evidence to present there. I know that Churchill both admired, respected Hoover, but at the same time feared Hoover because he felt that Hoover was presiding over the big boom of the American economy. Well, of course, that wasn't going to last. In New York City, at the Hotel Commodore, with 2,000 guests in the audience, Churchill gave speeches across the United States, but one of the last speeches he gave before returning to the UK was here in New York City. And he addressed front and center the naval rivalry question. And he's now changed his tune somewhat. His view is, if the United States builds up a great navy, that's probably a good thing. It will help Britain in the long run. And that this rivalry should go away. And one of the uh, sentences in his speech, which I just love, it's so Churchillian, you know, what's the point of speaking the same language if we can't disagree from time to time? So you can see this trip to the United States has had a big impact on Winston Churchill. And he's trying to reach out to Americans and saying, let's put this naval rivalry behind us. It's not something that should lead to a contest between the two countries. Indeed, the two countries should be working together not at cross-purposes with each other. He wrote a whole series of articles about his trip across Canada and back across the United States for the newspaper, the Daily Telegraph. And uh, he highlighted something that we all realize today, but was true back then too, which is that the whole international economic system is caught up in the well-being of the United States economy. Churchill was here, by the way, in New York when the crash occurred and lost a great deal of money in the, uh, the crash. So he went back to England in 1929, poorer than when he arrived. Well, Churchill wanted to come back to the United States again for a speaking tour, in part to recoup some of the losses he had in the stock market. And in 1931, he came back to the United States. Unfortunately, before a speaking tour could occur, getting out of a cab, looking the wrong way, he got clobbered and hit by a car, could have killed him. It was estimated by his friend, Sir uh, Frederick Lindemann, the Oxford physicist, that the impact of the car was the equivalent of falling from a two-story building. 
powerful. And here he is being released from the hotel. Again, front page New York Times news that he was hit over at 70th Street and 5th Avenue, taken to the hospital. Fortunately for Churchill, he had wonderful medical care. Uh, he had Dr. Otto Pickhart, who, remember this is Prohibition America, uh, and Churchill needed only the best medicine. And so Dr. Pickhart uh, certified that Churchill needed the use of alcoholic spirits, especially at mealtimes, especially at mealtimes, and the quantity is naturally indefinite, but the minimum requirements should be 250 cubic centimeters. Now that's a doctor that we all can appreciate. <laughs> Trying to relieve pain and suffering. Well, Churchill wrote about his experience in the Daily Mail for an article that earned him a great deal of money. Uh, uh, today, he, it would probably have been about eighty or $90,000 is what he earned for writing this article about his experience of being hit by a car in New York City. Uh, and he took the blame completely. He didn't try to pass the blame on to anyone else. I foolishly looked the wrong way when I got out of the cab. Well, the New York that he came back to, very different from the one he left. Uh, these iconic photographs and newsreel films of the Great Depression. And look at these men, beaten down without hope, none looking up, only a few looking up at the, the, the camera. What despair is there? Uh, what a tremendous, tremendous economic catastrophe, a man-made catastrophe. Well, this is leading to Franklin D. Roosevelt becoming president in a landslide over Hoover. Hoover didn't preside over the great boom. Instead, he provided, presided over the great crash. Now, in 1934, Churchill wrote an article about FDR, looking at uh, the early days, the early year and a half of the Roosevelt presidency. And he's already formed a very favorable impression of Roosevelt. He writes in this newspaper article, says, my view of the presidency is that Roosevelt will rank among one of the leading presidents. Why is that? These are the attributes that Churchill saw in Roosevelt. Generous sympathy for the underdog, social justice, composure at a time of crisis, that puts him in the class of famous men of action. Um, Roosevelt's son, James Roosevelt, took a tour of uh, England in 1933. And he visited Churchill at Churchill's country house, Chartwell. And after dinner, they played a game. And the game was, uh, what's your, your biggest wish? What would you like to have if you could have a wish come true? And Churchill said, to President Roosevelt's son, that he'd like to be prime minister. Is this a couple wishes, maybe? Three wishes? I don't know. But he'd like to be prime minister. Again, ambition to be the leading political figure in Britain. But he wants to be in daily telephone communication with the president. Because the president and the prime minister working together, there's nothing that the two countries couldn't accomplish. Well, this is right at a time where the Great Depression and the economic downturn leads to a new war. Look at this photograph of Hitler coming to power January 30th, 1933 in Germany, just a short while before President Roosevelt in March of 1933 becomes president. What a creepy photograph. Look at those eyes. 
Look at him. He has his arms around this young boy who's, what, 12 years old? He's stealing away the youth of Germany. Who's most disaffected by the economic downturn? Young people who can't find jobs. Young people who are desperately unhappy. And here is Hitler giving the message, winning them over that younger generation. Well, we can be pretty certain what happened is this uh, young boy, probably going to die on the Eastern Front at Stalingrad, uh, caught up by the Fuhrer and sent on wars of conquest. Wow, that photograph right there is so demonic. That captures, in a way, the Hitler movement in Germany. Well, Churchill wanted to come back to the United States to give a lecture to her, but the international situation in the late 30s was so desperate that he couldn't. So he tried to reach out to the United States by radio. In November 1938, he gives a speech that's broadcast by NBC Radio Network around the United States. And this is, Churchill wrote all of his own speeches, by the way, and this shows uh, what Churchill would read from. He would memorize his speeches, but he always kept a script in front of him as well so that uh, he, he, he wouldn't lose his, his place. And in this speech, he highlights that given the danger of Nazi Germany, that Britain has to arm itself and America has to arm. The United States can't be oblivious to the danger of Hitler's Germany. But he also wants to highlight something that he highlighted in the First World War. This is an ideological struggle, a struggle between militarism, extremist nationalism, and democracy, Arms are not sufficient by themselves. We must add the power of ideas. People are motivated by ideas to stand up and fight, to take a stand for what they believe in, and that the American people have to understand the danger that's being posed by this new extremist militarized regime in Germany. Well, the message, of course, many in the United States didn't want to hear that message, including William Randolph Hearst that Churchill had met in 1929. Hearst told his newspapers, English propaganda is flooding the United States. It's subtle and shrewd, that propaganda. There are ablest statesmen engaged in it. Churchill's wrong. He's wrong about the stakes here for America. The United States should not be involved in European affairs. That led the United States to the first great war. Never again, never again take part in another great European war. That's the Hearst message. Well, the war that Churchill feared broke out in 1939. Germany moving against Poland. Wars of conquest, Germany moving north, overrunning Denmark, Norway, but also the assault on France in the spring of 1940, and the defeat of France. The international situation has been changed around dramatically. Nazi Germany, through these conquests, has established its dominion over Europe. What's next? Britain? And here we see the German leadership, Hermann Goering, the head of the German Air Force, looking across the Straits of Dover toward Britain. Churchill highlighted for the British and American people that upon this battle, the Battle of Britain, the survival of Christian civilization is at stake. There's an existential struggle at the heart of Western civilization. Who's going to win out? The liberal democracies or Nazism? That's what's at stake here. Stakes are extremely high. And Britain 
has to fight, take a stand, even though it's isolated, with no major allies, has to take a stand. And again, that means that Germany is going to move against Britain, this battle of Britain, because Hitler has to try to defeat Britain. If Britain could hold out, there's still a hope then of defeating Nazi Germany. And in this famous speech called the Finest Hour Speech, Churchill is underscoring how important it is for the United States. The stakes are here for the United States, not just for Britain. Because if Britain goes down, what will happen? A new dark age made sinister by the lights of perverted science. So Britain has to stand up, and this will be their finest hour. Well, Churchill, behind the rhetoric, is asking the British chiefs of staff, the military leaders, what are our hopes of being able to defeat Nazi Germany, to be able to hold on in this battle of Britain? And the British chiefs write a most secret appreciation. And the things that I've highlighted in it is that Britain can hold on as long as the United States provides support. If not, look what they say. We can't continue the war with any chance of success. And the other big caveat that the British chiefs highlight is will the British people, will their morale stay high under air assault, a German air attack? Well, here's the headlines after Churchill's speech. Britons will not surrender. But that means that the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, is then thrown into play to fight the Battle of Britain. And this is one of the great turning points of the Second World War. Here you see over the east end of London in Greenwich, a German bomber in daylight flying over the British capital. This is a scary sight when you don't have control over your own airspace. And the German bombing of British cities, airfields, between August 1940 and December 1940, about 25,000 British civilians lost their lives in these German air assaults. Again, we've lived through September 11th. It's the equivalent of eight September 11th attacks over that period of time. Buckingham Palace was hit. This is a photograph taken on September 11th, 1940. And there you see the King and Queen with Churchill. House of Commons in April 1941 bombed and destroyed. Whenever I see this photograph, uh, I always think about that fourth airliner on September 11th that went down in Pennsylvania. Where was that heading? To the Capitol? To the White House? But the people on that aircraft uh, fought back. Uh, so we don't know where that fourth airliner would have gone. Well, fortunately for Britain, for Churchill, Roosevelt was there to support the British. He understood what was, was at stake. Many of his advisors sided more with William Randolph Hearst that the United States should defend ourselves in the hemisphere not provide support to Britain, but Roosevelt overruled them. He saw it as important to form a coalition with Britain, and he worked towards supporting Britain even before the United States was in the war. Why? Because he gets it. He understands that this is an ideological struggle, a struggle for the supremacy of human rights, as he said. Well, Britain didn't fold in 1940, so Hitler attacked the Soviet Union. June 22, 1941, that's the equivalent of Pearl Harbor for the peoples of the Soviet Union. Surprise attack of Nazi Germany on the Soviet Union. In the immediate aftermath, Roosevelt understands, as does Churchill, 
that this German attack on the Soviet Union provides an opportunity to form a big coalition against Nazi Germany. So in August 1941, let's get the chronology straight here, August 1941, several months before Pearl Harbor, Churchill and Roosevelt are meeting off the coast of Newfoundland. Instead of a big battle of Sable Island, you have American and British warships getting together, bringing the leaders of these two states together to think about what our aims should be and our strategy for defeating Nazi Germany. Religious ceremony that was held aboard the battleship Prince of Wales with the president and the prime minister there, American and British crews together. Headlines from the New York Times, joint steps. They released the Atlantic Charter, which has eight elements to it. Number six is the most important. Again, this is before Pearl Harbor, August 41. This is a public document after the final destruction of Nazi tyranny. The United States still isn't in the war, but we're calling for what we today would call regime change, an end to this obnoxious regime. And with that, the British Prime Minister and President hoped to establish a peace, a lasting peace. Again, freedom from fear and want. Well, war does come to America, as we know, at Pearl Harbor. Some of you have seen this before in other talks that I've given, but I, I, uh, for those who haven't seen this, this just shows how the unexpected can occur. This is the program for the Army-Navy game in November 1941. On the right is the cover. Inside the program is a photograph of the battleship Arizona plowing into the waves. And there's a caption underneath that photograph on the left. Let me read it to you. The USS Arizona, as she plows into a huge swell, it's significant that despite the claims of air enthusiasts, no battleship has yet been sunk by bombs. This is another creepy photograph. Less than two weeks later at Pearl Harbor, the Arizona, of course, is sunk by bombs, destroyed, magazine explosion, over a 1,000 men killed. There's the Arizona today. Of all the battleships in the U.S. Navy, picked out the Arizona. This is what the ancient Greeks would call hubris, pride. The gods come back and strike you down for making statements like this. Well, the attack on Pearl Harbor brings the United States <coughs> into war with Japan. Hitler, a few days later, declares war on the United States. On December 8, 1941, President Roosevelt went before a joint session of Congress, asked for a declaration of war, and he had his speechwriter write up a speech for him. He then changed it, and this is fascinating because look at the first sentence. It says, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in world history. Look how Roosevelt has changed it. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, dash, a pause, a date which will live in infamy, dash. The president is owning this speech. He's using his own language. He understands how important it is to say something, get beyond the vanilla. Uh, and hence, we remember this speech on December 7th as the day of infamy. Very powerful rhetoric there. But also... He adds in by hand this paragraph. No matter how long it may take, 
to overcome this premeditated invasion. The word that I highlighted in his 1928 uh, article. Well, Churchill came to the United States in December 1941, and on December 26th, the day after Christmas, 1941, he gave a speech to a joint session of Congress. And in that speech, he paid tribute to his mom. And as you can see, he wrote in by hand, I wish my mom could be here to see this. He also then told a joke right after. He said, hey, I can't help but reflecting that if my father had been an American and my mom British, I might have been here in Congress already. Well, this is how we remember these two leaders, right? During the war, Churchill and Roosevelt had disagreements. Their staffs, their advisors had disagreements. But the United States, Britain, world history, wow, we are fortunate that these two leaders were in charge. Because while they saw things from different perspectives, nonetheless, they charted the destiny of their two countries, kept them together, forged the grand alliance that was critical for the defeat of Nazi Germany. Uh, there was nothing preordained by this. It could have gone wrong, terribly wrong. But because of Churchill and Roosevelt, these two great leaders, they were able to pool and harness the resources to bring together uh, the great coalition to defeat Germany. Well, when Roosevelt died in April of 1941, Churchill gave a eulogy for him. And what did he have to say about Roosevelt? Uh, in war, he raised the strength, might, and glory of the great republic to a height never attained by any nation in history. And so today, we celebrate these two leaders who, in a very desperate time, were able to lead their countries to victory over, over, uh, a terrible, terrible foe. Thank you. Uh, questions and or comments, please. Thank you for your wonderful talk. It was greatly appreciated. Uh, you stopped with the relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt but I wonder if you have any thoughts on the relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt's successor, uh, President Truman, and on his relationship with President Eisenhower, who he must have known very, very well. Yes, uh, very good question. Uh, as you know, I'm quite loquacious and run over already, and so I thought Roosevelt to Roosevelt had a good ring to it. But you're quite right. He had a close relationship with President Truman, he met with Truman at Potsdam in 1945. Truman, of course, invited him over to the United States to give a speech at Fulton, Missouri. that becomes known as the Iron Curtain speech of March of 1946. Truman had a very high regard for Churchill. And Churchill had a high regard for uh, Truman. Now, at the end of the war, the, uh, the coalition government in Britain that had been in power broke apart, and Labor won a big landslide victory. So Churchill was no longer prime minister. So from 45 to 51, Churchill was out of office. So during most of the Truman administration, he was not in uh, power. Though in 1951, when he came back to power, he was a big supporter of Truman and the American effort in Korea, and was also concerned about the uh, Soviet threat to Western Europe. 
He had a, uh, a relationship with Eisenhower that was more rocky, more stormy. Uh, Churchill hoped after the death of Stalin to try to open, in 1953, to open up um, negotiations with the Soviet Union to see whether there was a possibility of bringing about a more stable peace in Europe rather than the division of Europe along the Iron Curtain. The United States, our leaders were more dubious about that. Uh, they didn't think a summit with Stalin's successors would produce the type of settlement that Churchill thought could be achieved. And they were afraid that the result of such summitry might actually weaken the West, weaken the Atlantic Alliance, and weaken NATO. Churchill, in his last years as prime minister from 51 to 55, his main purpose in life was to try to be a great victor in peace as well as in war and try to avoid the Cold War and a thermonuclear war. His last speech is about nuclear weapons, major speech in parliament. So he had a relationship with Eisenhower that was a little more rocky, and Churchill was very disappointed that the Americans wouldn't back him up. And so the great summit between American, Soviet, and British leaders never took place. Again, we don't know what the result would have been. One more here, and then I'll... Uh, oh, or how do we want to do this? Oh, over here now, excuse me. In, in your research... Right. Right. Uh, yes, uh, here. In in your research, uh, did you find out what was the guiding uh, principle behind the League of Nations to divide Ottoman Empire? Uh, yes, uh, uh, we end the First World War typically as ending on November 11, 1918, the Western Front. But the reality was the First World War continued in many ways in Eastern Europe and also in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And you only have uh, a settlement in the Middle East coming in 1922 and 1923. So there's a great deal of violence still in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East. And Churchill played a big role in trying to fashion a settlement in the Middle East as colonial secretary. Modern day Iraq uh, is in part a creation of his at that time. So yes, Churchill played a big role in the settlement after the First World War in the Middle East. Thank, Thank you. you. Back over here. Thank you very much for an incredible statement of history. Can I ask you to apply your history and your knowledge to what you think today should be our naval power? Um, I, um, uh, good question. And um, uh, in response to this, I have to say that I am a government employee. Um, <laughs> that um, anything that I say is my own personal opinion and not that of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the Navy Department, or the <laughs> Naval War College. Now, having said that, um, the, the United States, I think, is, is, is uh, American people aren't as aware uh, of how important naval power is in the world. And uh, the United States is being increasingly challenged, uh, especially in Asia, by uh, China. And um, China is developing a powerful capability to fight on the seas. And so in many ways, you're seeing a replay of earlier naval rivalries, like happened between Britain and Germany, or as I was talking about, Britain and the United States. 
And I don't think the American public, I think we take for granted uh, our position in the world. Uh, I think the world is getting increasingly more dangerous. And I think we need to be spending more on the Navy. I know that sounds like I'm coming from somebody who, who uh, works for the Navy. But I, 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 I think we, we should have a greater appreciation for that. Over here, please. In your discussion of the post-war, First World War, rivalry between the United States and England, you did not have time to talk about the 5-5-3-1 ratio. And I'd like to know how that affected the United States and Great Britain. Yes. Uh, in 1921-22, President, Har uh, President Harding called a conference. It became known as the Washington Conference that took place from November 1921 into uh, February 1922 uh, to try to settle these differences about naval rivalry. And so they came up with this formula of 553 that you mentioned. Five being Britain and the United States would have parity, equality with each other in the largest warships afloat, ships over 10,000 tons displacement, battleships and aircraft carriers. Japan was accorded a 60% ratio, the three. Japanese naval leaders resented that a great deal. And so part of the interwar history of these naval rivalries are that Japan's leaders believed that they should have parity, a navy as strong as Britain and the United States. Our rationale was that the United States and Britain are global powers, world powers, hence needed larger navies for their security, whereas Japan was a regional power focused in Asia. At the time, it was, it was actually quite a good deal for Japan to get a 60% ratio because Japanese industry finances were not up to building up to be as strong a navy as Britain and the United States. But these arms control agreements paradoxically create friction with Japan in particular and Japanese naval leaders that help explain the radicalization of the Japanese Naval Officer Corps that leads to Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank you for a very fine lecture. Uh, I happen to be a historian of India, and you underplayed, for lack of time, the British Empire as one of the constants for Churchill. Even in the statements and letters which you used, he talked about the endurance for a thousand years of the British Empire. And in the Atlantic Charter, the self-government of nations. However, Churchill did not think this applied to India, whereas FDR did. So could you just pick up the theme of the British Empire running through this a little bit? Very important question because, as you say, Churchill uh, didn't want to preside over the disillusion of the British Empire. He was a firm believer in the British Empire as being a moral force for good in the world. And when he signed the Atlantic Charter, his advisors were saying, well, if this applies to our empire, it means independence for India and, and anybody who wants to vote with their feet by getting out of the British Empire. And Churchill's response was, we'll worry about that after the war. But one of the irritants between Roosevelt and Churchill during the war was that Churchill uh, was being bugged constantly, uh, uh, goaded by Roosevelt to give more self-government moving toward independence for, for India. So it was an important irritant there. Churchill was a firm believer of the British Empire and saw this war uh, as uh, trying to defend the British Empire and maintain Britain's place in the world. If no longer the strongest power in the world, well then strong relative to everybody else except for the United States. So, yes. 
Uh, didn't uh, Great Britain control the seas from uh, 1588 when she defeated the Armada till after World War II? Uh, British uh, leaders, political and naval, were of course very proud of the naval history and heritage that going back to the Armada, as you said, and Elizabeth I and defeating the Great Armada, and of course the wars against Napoleon and Nelson, Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square, beating the French at the Battle of Trafalgar. So Britain's naval leaders, and I didn't talk about that in the red-blue, the British naval leaders were also gaming out a war against the United States. And the remarkable thing is that it very much mirrors what we were doing. They were going to send a fleet over, and it was likely to lead to a big naval battle, and they were going to try to be able to reinforce Canada and try to hold on against uh, the United States invasion. So the British uh, naval leaders and politicians, like the Lloyd George slide I put up there, they, they saw themselves as they, they should maintain Britain's leadership because it did stretch back to uh, Elizabeth I. But by the way, just one quick point. The Canadians also war-gamed out and war-planned in case they were invaded. And their, their top military planner was a colonel, an army colonel, who had the name, believe it or not, Buster Brown. <laughs> well, anyway, Colonel Brown said that if the United States mobilizes these big armies, they're going to conquer Canada. So what his response was? At, whenever it looked like war was imminent, whatever Canadian troops could be quickly mobilized, Let's mobilize them quickly and attack the United States. Try to seize Seattle, Bismarck, North Dakota, that great center. Uh, uh, Seattle, Bismarck, Buffalo. That that would be the way, a spoiling attack against the United States. Imagine that. Okay. Uh, thank you. Yes, please. Uh, you, you went to, into detail about American involvement in the Second World War. But my question is, how did America get involved in the First World War? Um, naval issues loomed large here because the Germans wanted to close down the sea lines of communication to Britain with its submarine campaign, the U-boats. And the German naval leadership had come to the conclusion that unrestricted submarine warfare, sinking ships on the high seas without any warning to those ships, uh, would be able to defeat Britain within six months. That was their estimation. Now, that meant that they would shoot at ships that had American flags, because that ship might have an American flag on it, but it might not be American. It might be a deception. In violation of international law, but it still could be a deception. So the Germans launched this submarine campaign, and Wilson had staked his reputation on this, that if Germany went ahead with unrestricted submarine warfare, he would bring the United States into the war. And so that's what happened. On January 9, 1917, the Kaiser and his admirals and generals sat down at a big conference, and they said, should we go ahead with this? And the Kaiser said, yes, the admirals want it, the generals want it. They saw it as a silver bullet. They thought that this was the miracle weapon, the wonder weapon. As it turned out, it wasn't. Because of convoys, you could protect the shipping. While you would lose a lot of ships, you would never lose so many that you would lose the war. And uh, the Americans coming into the war, boy, uh, one of the things of Germany's strategy and foreign policy in the First World War is that Germany, this rising power like the United States, manages to turn into its enemies both Britain and the United States. And that seals their fate in the First World War. And much of it has to do with the submarine menace. Thanks very much. Thank you.
Yes. John, thank you again for a wonderful lecture. My question deals with World War I. Um, the British who won the war said that they lost a generation of their finest young people. The Germans who lost the war, what did they lose besides the war? Yes, yes. Um, Germany, uh, Br first of all, Britain in the First World War had over 700,000 fatalities dead, most of them on the Western Front in France. And so much of the commemorations now for the 100th anniversary of the First World War are remembering the Western Front and the fighting that went on there. Interestingly, in the Second World War, Britain has less than half the fatalities, even though the Second World War is longer in duration and the British homeland is under attack, they have less than half the fatalities that they had in the First World War. And that's because they're not fighting very much on land in Europe against the German army. They fight initially in 39-40 and then from 44-45 on. So Britain's casualties in the Second World War are fewer than the First World War. Um, with regard to Germany, Germany has almost 1,300,000 killed in the First World War. And so one of the consequences of, of this for Germany is that uh, a whole cohort of, of young men are taken away. And that photograph I show of Hitler with the young boy, how, how many you know, fathers, older brothers, uncles, stabilizing male influences that could have been there are now not there for that young boy? An alternative voice to that of Hitler. So one of the long-term legacies of the First World War for Germany is defeat, what they see as a humiliating peace treaty imposed upon them, but also a German society that is wrecked somehow and destabilized and prone to an extremist nationalist message like that of, of Hitler. So I, I, I don't see Hitler coming to power except for the horrible fatalities of the First World War changing around German society. The Germany that went into the First World War and the Germany that comes out of the First World War are two very different societies. Thank you. Thank you for your fruitful presentation. Uh, I'd like to emphasize the fact about the rivalry between Great Britain and the United States about the, the navies. Was this taken into consideration that the, the Japanese would have a powerful fleet? And also, what played a, a, a pivotal point uh, in that was the, the uh, production of aircraft carriers and submarines, which the United States knew about but the Japanese had probably the most powerful navy in the South Pacific. And the Germans, of course, were their U-boats, who had very few ships, no carriers. Mm -hmm. But the, great, the British had one carrier, two carriers, and they were relegated to around the southern part of South America to uh, defend against uh, that situation with the Graf Spee. Mm -hmm. That was one. But, but So that, that was the pivotal point, I think, as far as the United States being... Uh, being, uh, I have one fast question. He's quite, he's uh, capable. He, he said that democracy was the best of the least. No system was good. Where, where did that come from? Uh, yes, Churchill uh, said that um, uh, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Uh, and, and again, what he's trying to highlight is no form of government, nothing created by humans, is going to be perfect. But of all the forms of government, this, this is the one that uh, is, is the best for humans to organize themselves around. And, so, and the history of the two world wars shows that democracies can be effective in war in that they won both world wars and the Cold War too. So 
uh, I think many times people get down on democracy. They see the partisan fighting that takes place. Uh, and, and, uh, and sometimes that can be unhealthy. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, uh, what a talented people. People are, uh, are able to, to get caught up in a debate. And these things can be openly discussed. And so I think you get buy-in. So Churchill understood that for all of its weaknesses, democracies also had great strengths. Thank you for this. Uh, I was fascinated by the uh, uh, war between Britain and the United States that didn't take place. Uh, I recently learned that the keep calm and carry on slogan uh, is a reference to once Germany invades and occupies England, you have to keep calm and carry on. My, que my question though is about the, the personal relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill, I have been led to believe that they, they got each other and they had such commonalities and that, that, was, that, that when the chips were down, that they understood. Mm -hmm. they, they both sang Onward Christian Soldiers. They, mm -hmm. they knew where the other was coming from and that, that cleaved them yes. in a way that... Yes, they, they, they both had great respect for each other. Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't say negative things about each other, and indeed there's much, uh, 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 there are a lot of comments that you can cherry pick to show that, uh, that they didn't get along. And I think too many historians highlight the, uh, the negative things that are said, whereas I think what's really the case is that these two leaders are on, in sync with each other, as you say. And uh, one episode in this regard is in the summer of 1942, Churchill was over here in the United States in June, and he got word that the fortress in Libya, Tobruk, had fallen to the Germans. A, a huge military disaster for the British, in other words. They've lost big in North Africa. And uh, this was read out while they were in meetings, the British chiefs, American chiefs, Churchill and Roosevelt. So Churchill has to admit right there to a coalition partner, we've lost big. And there was a silence. And then Roosevelt broke the silence by saying, what can we do to help? And Churchill said, no other leaders in the world but Americans would behave like that. Instead, they'd be calculating, how, how can I take advantage of this humiliation? You have my partner to get one up. on a Yeah, we're partners, but how do I use this to advantage? But instead it is, what can I do? What can we do to help? And Churchill and his staff came back, we need tanks if we're gonna defeat Rommel in North Africa, the German general. And so American tanks are sent over that play a role in Britain winning the Battle of El Alamein six months later. So uh, 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 Churchill and Roosevelt were on a, a relationship there where they understood that they had to support each other. They were driven to this, but they also liked each other in some way. Um, by, by the way, one thing Churchill did not like about Roosevelt were Roosevelt's cocktails. <laughs> when he would go to the White House and, and Roosevelt had a special cocktail, he'd work, work up and Churchill I said, oh, this is terrible. Where's the nearest plant? Uh, and he actually said to Roosevelt, you, you shouldn't be drinking that. That's too strong stuff. And that's the pot calling the kettle black, right? <laughs> <laughs> Professor Maurer, thank you very much for coming today. How are you, how are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. Returning once more to War Plan Red and its potential applicability to U.S.-China relations, it appears that China is currently pursuing, and you alluded to this earlier, um, that it, this is playing out potentially as another uh, iteration of these past naval rivalries. China 
while economically the United States and China appear to be like an earlier iteration of the United States and Britain, China appears to be pursuing a naval strategy more akin to Germany before the First World War or France even around the time of the Franco-Prussian War. Um, what changes in U.S. naval strategy, what pattern do you think that we should follow to, um, to potentially overcome, hopefully without fighting, this potential threat? Yes, uh, that's a good, 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 uh, good question. In thinking about today, uh, it is useful to look back to the naval rivalries before the First World War and also the rise of Japanese naval power that we talked about uh, earlier here. The, because you see these rising challengers who are trying to do what we call today asymmetric warfare, be it submarines or carrier aviation, as was mentioned in an early, uh, earlier question, that uh, these rising powers are trying to harness technology or new ways of fighting to take down the dominant power. And so the fear today is that China has developed an anti-ship ballistic missile, highly accurate, that will be able to take out aircraft carriers. Uh, so you have to take that, if it is as good as it, who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, the only way you would know is in wartime, right. and let's hope we never find out. So uh, the chi China is in many ways following the pattern of other countries, and that's why uh, it's worthwhile studying these historical precedents to get a sense of how leaders think about this and how they game it out. Mm -hmm. Because leaders do game it out at all levels of thinking about these type of wars, which might never occur. Now, uh, up at Harvard, there's a political scientist who has looked at rivalries between great powers from the time of the Spanish Armada from 1500 to today, and he's come up with a list of 15 of these rivalries of rising powers on the world stage and status quo powers trying to defend themselves. And of these 15, he's come to the conclusion that 11 out of the 15 resulted in war. Now, one of the 15 is the U.S.-Britain one that didn't end in war, mm -hmm. but 11 out of 15. So if you're a betting person, <laughs> you would say that there's a two-thirds chance that this rivalry between a rising China and the United States, the reigning world leader, could lead to war. And I think, again, in response to the earlier question, most Americans don't rate the probability of a China-U.S. war that high, and I don't think it is either. I think it's a low probability event. But nonetheless, uh, if such a war were to occur, it's another world war. It's catastrophic. So uh, there are dangers here on the international scene that mirror in ways other rising power challengers like, like you mentioned. Thank you. Uh, just a little conspiracy theory on the yeah. Lusitania. I w I've been reading right. recently. It, was, it did have armaments on right. it. There were uh, many American passengers. There was no convoy. Uh, Churchill later was said to be very, well, yeah, he was encouraged by the sinking because he said now America's coming in. Was there any, you know, thought, thoughts about not having a convoy? Would a convoy have drawn attention to it, and that's why there was no convoy? The, um, I, I, I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories, and this is one that, again, as you say, has gotten caught up in conspiracies. Churchill wanted the U.S. support in both world wars. That is the case. No doubt about that. At the same time, though, he's not doing weird things to try to trigger war. It's the Germans and Japanese who are doing the things that trigger war. Now, the Lusitania was not convoyed for a couple reasons. One is, most ships weren't convoyed at that stage in 1915 in the war. 
uh, uh, convoys were not common, quite the reverse. The second thing is that the Lusitania, being a big steamer, has a high speed. And so it, it's one of the least vulnerable ships out there. Because submarines at this time, they're not the nuclear-powered attack boats of today. They don't have high speed. Uh, and uh, the Lusitania is such a big ship, it could be armed, that a submarine has to go underwater. When it goes underwater, it has next to no speed in this period of time. Can't follow it. So the Lusitania can steam right by a submarine, and a submarine might say, stop, stop, I'm going to shoot, it'll just go right by it. Now what happened here was that the captain of the Lusitania has slowed down his ship off the coast of Ireland, is not zigzagging, zigzag again, is, uh, and he's doing this because he's worried about the timing of coming into British port. Um, and, and so as a consequence, he's made himself vulnerable to the Germans. This should never have happened. And it, uh, the responsibility really does rest on the shoulders of the captain. Now, once it happens, Churchill is saying, look at this. This is uh, an abomination. It shows exactly what I've said about German militarism and, and the rest. And hence, the United States should be supporting us more. Theodore Roosevelt, by the way, believed the same thing. Uh, I, I'm sorry to say that I'm out of time now. Thank you very much for your attention.